God, thank you for this day once again. And we can't help but thank you for each gift that you give us, the gift of a day, the gift of time that you give us that we can choose. You give us ability to choose how we spend that time. Uh, your invitation for us to engage with you uh, and to be in relationship with you. Your invitation to us to enjoy other people in our lives and those relationships and how you are glorified in both of those things. And so today we pray as we look into your word that you would open our hearts and you would prepare us for what you want to say. That uh, anything that maybe we've brought in here that's distracting us or, or is on our minds, God, that we could set that aside for just a moment and that we could uh, just draw closer to you through your word. So I pray that you would do only what your Holy Spirit can do and that you would speak to us individually through this word, that uh, the, the basics of what you want to communicate to each of us and what you want to challenge us to do in our lives, that that would just be made real for each person in this room and anyone that can hear my voice, God. I just pray that you would use it. And we ask all this in your name. Amen. So last week, we began our year talking about drawing closer, that that's our theme for this year. We want to draw closer to God. And we began with maybe something that's probably not new information, hopefully, but the idea that God wants you, that whoever you are, whatever you come in here with, whatever your life looks like, whether you feel like you're a mess, whether you feel like you've got it all together, whether you feel like you don't deserve it or whether you feel like you do, the, the bottom line is that God wants you. And we trace that all the way back to Genesis, and we examine with great lengths, uh, the great lengths actually, to which the Lord has gone to make this happen, to make this relationship that we have with him possible uh, for us, his people. And so the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, is the number one part of that. His name in Hebrew is Yeshua, and that means salvation. And so he's our Messiah. It's this invitation that God issues to each of us to embrace him and to have relationship with him. And so each one of us, because it's a gift, we have an opportunity, right? We can say yes to that gift and we can embrace it and accept it, or we can say no to that gift and we can reject it. And, uh, but the big, biggest part of that that we're going to be talking about is just the idea that it's not just a mental decision. It's not just something that we decide. It's not, okay, I believe that, and then you go on with your life. It's actually something that should change our lives, that it should transform the whole of our lives, not just little compartmentalized parts, you know, little, okay, well, this will change and this will change, but I'm really cool with what this looks like. No, when we surrender to God, it's a whole life decision. And Jesus believed this as well. And he continually throughout his ministry and his life underscored the importance of this and what our lives should look like as God's children. In fact, part of the reason that he came was to demonstrate that, to actually show us what it meant to live out a, a God, like a sold out for God type of life. And so he said this was the most important thing in Mark 12. You're probably familiar with this. We've been talking about it for a while. Uh, starting with verse 28, Jesus answered the most important thing is, and this, he was asked the question, right? Well, okay, what do you think is the most important uh, commandment within all of God's word? And he said, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then he said, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment or there's no commandment greater than these. And so he gives us a bonus commandment as well. 
His answer is taken from two portions of Scripture. We've been talking about this a little bit. But Deuteronomy 6 is where the first part of that comes from. It's known as the Shema. And the second part comes from another thing that we'll talk about another time. This is what I want to focus on today. And we talked about this again last week. I introduced this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And many of us maybe have grown up in the church, thought that this was just a Jesus thing, or it was a New Testament thing. But the truth of the matter is, it dates all the way back to sort of the beginning of God's relationship with his people. This is known as Shema. It's a prayer that's so powerful that uh, Jewish people and Messianic believers in Jesus shape their days by praying this in the morning and praying it in the evening. They want to direct their hearts toward God. This prayer was central to the life of Jesus, our Messiah. He prayed this prayer too, often. And so as followers of Jesus, we're called Christians, right? Most of us probably know that. But did you know that Christians literally means little Christs? So in other words, we should look like tiny little versions of Jesus walking around on this planet, doing the things that he did, saying the things that he said, uh, loving people the same way that he loved. That's what our job is. And so like Peter and John and James, and then those who came after Jesus like Paul, we are his disciples. And so if you're a disciple, that means that you have a rabbi or a teacher. Jesus is our rabbi. And a rabbi's instructions weren't just, "Eh, if you want to do this, you can do it, right? A rabbi's instructions are considered to be commandments. And so commandments are something that we follow. But the time and the place and the cultural context for this passage is really crucial to knowing what Jesus understood this to mean. We read through this and sometimes we read it and we kind of read it like, uh, love the Lord your God very, very, very much, right? We don't think about the heart, the soul, the mind. We just think it's a bunch of varies that are kind of stacked in there. But there's a lot more that's going on beneath the surface. Culture is important. All this stuff is important. And so sometimes people say, well, you know, you really talk about Jewish stuff a lot. That's, and that's different for me because I didn't grow up in that. But what we've learned, guys, is that Jewish stuff is actually Jesus stuff, right? Because he was Jewish, and so he had a system of beliefs and standards and all these things that can be foreign to us because of the cultural that we've grown up into. And so that's why we have to dig in to these things a little bit deeper. So when he says, hear, O Israel, the word for hear there is Shema. Shema means to listen, but Shema also means to obey. And so Jesus would have understood verbs like hearing and knowing and remembering and believing in Hebrew to include not only like this mental thing, but there'd also be a physical outcome to each of these words as well. So when he says hear, he doesn't just mean listen up. He means hear and obey. That's what's going on. And so we'll look at that here. But we're going to begin in Matthew seven twenty four, And this is one example where Jesus is actually using what we've just talked about. Then everyone who shamas or everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And this is an even better example here in Matthew 11, verse 14, where Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So he's not just saying, hey, listen up, everybody. Hey, you got two ears, one mouth, so listen more than you talk, right? I mean, he might be saying that, but he's also saying, listen, he who has ears, let he who can hear, let him obey. Or he who has ears to hear, let him obey. Obey, And so there's a whole bunch of other verses you can check out that also underscore Jesus using this exact uh, theme. But the point here, it starts all off by him saying, listen, the Lord our God or the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And there's a part of this that escapes us. We might think, well, God's just talking about um, 
maybe how mighty he is or how wonderful he is. And that's certainly an aspect of what this is. But I have to talk about the setting of what's going on here. When this was delivered to the people, when God said this, we have Moses and all the people from, that had been delivered from Egypt. And they made this covenant with God on Mount Sinai. And so if we're going to understand the Bible, this is super important. If we're going to really understand the Bible and what it means, we have to understand covenants and what covenants are. And so the book of Deuteronomy is structured like a type of treaty that was very, very common in that day and age in the ancient world. Covenants are simply this. They're binding relationships between two or more parties. But there are three things that makes a covenant a covenant. It's different than maybe a normal agreement or a promise or a contract. There are three things. Covenants require this from both parties. They require a mutual benefit. In other words, both people in the covenant have to benefit from the agreement. The second thing is this, that there are terms and conditions. And so if you're familiar with a contract type of thing, you know that in a contract there are terms and conditions. It's the thing that you skip every time you install software, right? Terms and conditions. Those are all the rules. Like, we're going to let you use this, but we get to do all these things with your personal information is basically what that's saying. And then the third thing is this, fidelity and faithfulness, which simply means this contract is to be honored. This covenant is binding, and both parties have to be faithful to this covenant. And so all of these elements are actually illustrated just a bit later in Deuteronomy 7.9, where it says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So you have all the elements there, right? You have uh, the mutual benefit. There's a, a mutual benefit of love that's happening here and goodness. You have terms and conditions. He's saying basically you need to keep his commandments. And then there's fidelity and faithfulness. And it's all based on his faithfulness, which is what's pretty amazing about this covenant uh, that we have with God. That it's his faithfulness uh, to a thousand generations that this whole thing is founded on. The other thing I would say is there's always a spiritual element to a biblical covenant. There's a spiritual side to that. And uh, it's cool because God is involved in that. That's what that means. God is involved, so he's sort of the endorser, so to speak, on the covenant. And that's a good thing because this verse declares that he's faithful and he promises even past our generation, right? His promises continue. But that leads us to something that's more crucial, I think, for us to understand about the Shema. And frankly, I think it's something that we miss. And a lot of that has to do with we're just weren't. We didn't grow up in that culture. We're not Hebrew. We're not in that part of the world. But I think it's important. Where it says, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. When we read that, again, we read it as, I'm awesome. I'm amazing. I'm omnipotent. I made the universe. I rule the world. Right? We, we think of God as stating his amazingness. And that is true. But... He actually did that earlier in Deuteronomy 4, and he did it in some other places in Deuteronomy. Specifically, he talked about his power, his glory, and all those kinds of things. Um, But what he's saying here is different, especially in the context of a covenant. What God is doing, he's declaring something. He's saying, listen, my oneness, all that I am, all of who I am is dedicated to my people. And then he goes on to establish the terms of their exclusive relationship. God is saying, listen, everything that I am, everything within my disposal, the allness of me, almighty God, is dedicated to you, my people, as a part of this covenant. Throughout Israel's history, they struggled to keep this covenant with God. And, you know, frankly, we get it, right? 
Because how many times do we promise God something or we say, yes, God, I'm going to let you do that in my life. And then, right, we don't or we fall back on our old habits or whatever it may be. So we get it. But what we understand here is that idolatry ended up having this really strong pull on God's people. That's why all of the different things that he says about, I don't want you marrying people from other places, and I don't want you mixing with this culture, and you should not go live in this land, but you should live in this land that I've set aside for you. All of these things have a purpose, right? He knows that the idolatry that he pulled them out of in Egypt was going to be very, very difficult for them to say no to. And so God is putting up parameters around them, right? He's putting up fences because he wants to make sure that he preserves his people for himself. He's doing it for their protection. He knows that all of those gods or whatever are not real. Like they're false. They're, it's a place that they should not invest their hearts because the truth is they should invest their hearts in relationship with him. Jeremiah 9.2, God likens idolatry to adultery, right? He's basically saying, listen, if you're messing with idols, you're cheating on me. He goes on in Ezekiel 6, 9 to liken idolatry to prostitution. Sorry, kids, you're in big church. You get to hear that word. Ask mom and dad. They'll tell you what it means. But basically, there's an unfaithfulness thing that's happening here. And so when God talks about this covenant relationship with this people, what he's saying is, listen, anytime you settle for less than me, you're cheating on me and you're only hurting yourself. So in the terms of this relationship between God and Israel very much has this feel of like a marriage commitment, right? That's what's going on here. So God gives his people everything that he is. I'm committed to you. He gives us full loyalty, but he expects the same in return. So the question you might have then, is, okay, well, that's great. That's fantastic. What does that have to do with me? Like, why, why is this important for us? Well, the first thing we need to know is that through Jesus, we are grafted into this relationship with God's people, into the commonwealth of Israel, as it's called. And so what that means is we share in this covenantal relationship with the Father. It's not about us, right? It's about Jesus inviting us to be a part of what God's doing. So I think it's very important that we understand it. And so the second part of this is now that we know kind of God and what he's saying about himself and that he's giving all of himself to this relationship, the second part states, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The way that Jesus would have understood these terms, such as heart and soul and might, are different than the way that we would. And so we have to look at some of those things. Um, let's take a look at the heart this week, and then we'll move on to the others in the next weeks. But when he commands us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. There's a Hebrew word for heart. There's two different ones. It's lev or levav. They believe that the heart was the center of human thought and spiritual life. So we look at the heart, right? And we think of it maybe in sort of an emotional manner, like my heart goes this way because of my emotions or it goes this way. Well, in Hebrew thought, they believed that the heart was actually the center of thinking. They believed it was much more like we would consider our brain. And so they believed it's where your mind and your thoughts reside. We tend to think of the heart as our emotional center, but Hebrew refers to it as your mind and your thoughts as well. And this makes sense if you think about it from their point of view, right? Because the heart's in the center of the body, Right? It's the only muscle that's continually moving in your body. It's just always doing something, right? And then they also had this belief that the life was in the blood. It actually says that in scripture. But that uh, a person's life was contained in the blood. And not to get too graphic about it, but here's why. When uh, they would eat an animal or they would sacrifice an animal, when they did that, right, they would drain the blood from the animal. And once the blood left, they noticed that the animal died. And so their belief was that there was life in the blood. So 
their whole point in this is that the heart is the center of thought activity. It's the center of decisions. It's the center of us making, like, making our way forward in life, making decisions, our beliefs. All of that stuff came from the heart. Mental commitments come from the heart. And really with more of a stress on the intellectual side of that than the emotional side of that. So where that gets us is this, and this might blow your mind, but basically love, this love that God calls for, it is by choice, but it's commanded. God commands us to love him. Have you ever thought about that? These are commandments. He's like, you must love me with all of your heart. You must love me with all of your soul. You must love me with all of your might. Does that seem weird to you at all? It is, it is a little weird, right? Because the society that we come from, uh, Western society, we define love as this emotional space. I looked over at her and I knew at once I was in love. The delight of her eyes, sparkling, did something in my heart and I shan't forget it, Right? <laughs> Here's the thing. That's emotional love, okay? But the Bible labels that kind of love as being immature, interestingly. And here, the other thing we have to remember, right, is that God is love. It says that over and over in Scripture. Like you, if you look at John or 1 John or 2 John, I mean, you cannot escape that God is love itself. It's like, okay, well, what do we do with that? Well, what that means is if it's his character and he's the one that tells us how to love, then we should understand that that's what it should look like. If I'm love and I'm telling you this is how you're supposed to do it, well, okay, you're the authority, I think I better pay attention to that. And so what he's saying is, listen, perfect love calls for way more than spontaneity. It requires commitment. Perfect love is commitment. This is more than emotional attachment. This love expresses itself in consistent action. The book of Deuteronomy is God's vow of commitment to his people. And I know sometimes we read through some of these books at the first part of the Bible, especially when we're trying to do, some of you are like in the Bible in a year thing right now. And I don't know if you've made it to um, Leviticus. You haven't probably yet. But when you make it to Leviticus, it's like, okay, that's usually when it falls off, right? Like, oh, <laughs> uh, I bit off way more than I can chew with this thing, right? So sometimes we read that first part of the Bible like, wow, this is kind of a snooze fest. I don't really get what's going on here. But if we can pour in and we can study it and we can dig in, I think we'll find that there's a lot that God wants us to understand and a lot he wants to say uh, to us through this. So perfect love calls for way more than spontaneity. It requires consistent commitment. And that our, our attachment to God, it's more than emotional attachment because our love for God should express itself in action. And so, as the all-powerful one true God is pledging his allness or his oneness in covenant with Israel. He's faithful, but he requires faithfulness in return. And in doing so, he rightfully demands all of her affection. Now, if this still sounds strange to you, I want to try and illustrate this in a way. Let's talk about marriage for just a second, right? So, for those of you that are married in the room, you'll probably get this. If you're not married, well, then this is a a teaching moment for you, maybe. And maybe if you are married, this is still a teaching moment for you. Because I got to read this all week, so... When you originally met your special man or your special lady there at the roller rink or wherever it was, right? Snowball, right? Oh, hey. Some of you understand what I'm saying. Some of you are like, I don't even know what that is. You don't skate enough. You need to get over to the skating rink. 
snowball. They've got the ladies skating around, and they've got the guys on one side, and the lady gets to come up to you, and she gets to choose who she gets to skate with. And so you're kind of like there trying to put out the vibe, you know? Look, I can skate backwards. Yeah. I can't, but. So when you met that person, what was it that got your attention about them? Like, was it, maybe it was, you know, obviously their looks, perhaps? Or maybe you called into like a technical help center and it was their voice. It's like, I don't know who you are, but I want to know, right? (laughs) It was something about them that caught your attention, that caught your fancy. You're like, I want to know that person better. I want to know more about them. And it stirred up all those special feelings and endorphins in your body. We're going to get biological here for just a second. God puts these things in us, right? He puts feelings in us. He designed us to have feelings for other people, to have an attraction. And there's a reason for that. It's commitment. He wants us to have that love moment with that person so that we form a bond with that person to ultimately build God-honoring families and procreate. That's ultimately what the goal was, right? It's the same reason he makes babies cute because if they were hideous, we would abandon them. Seriously. Yes, I did. Just say that. So it's like, this is not worth the trouble. Oh, but it's so cute. You're so cute when you're angry at 3 a.m. I love it. You know what I'm saying? God put these things in us because he wants us to form these bonds, these parental bonds, these relationship bonds, because he has a purpose for us. But it doesn't take very long in your marriage for you to realize that the warm, fuzzy feelings don't last all the time. Unless you have a perfect marriage, well, that's fantastic, good for you. But I'm just saying, just being real, those warm, fuzzy feelings can fade. The haze, the honeymoon phase, whatever you want to call it, like it starts to wear off after a while and, you know, there's the toothpaste the way that you don't like it or whatever it is, right? And suddenly there's a crisis situation. Rolled up, neatly folded, creased, no waste, right? I mean, it's like, okay, what are you doing? But I would suggest that it's in those moments where maybe it's not easy. By the way, I'm really glad my wife's here today. She's been sick, so it's good to have her. Yay! But it's in those moments where we have to make a choice. We have to renew our covenant, so to speak, with that person. And we choose, we decide to love them in those moments. Maybe we're there when, I mean, listen, I know that you probably think I'm the most lovable guy on earth. But if you talk to my wife for five minutes, you'll understand that maybe that's not true all the time. And it's not. I could be a jerk. I know it. We all can. And it's in those moments that suddenly love is more about this emotional attachment, but it's about a decision that you've made And frankly, I think a decision that we make in our hearts, right? That we're going to be with this person and we're going to love this person no matter what, through thick and thin, right? We say it, it is a part of the marriage covenant for better, for worse, for rich or poor, in sickness and in health, till death do we part. That is a covenant, that's a promise. And there's a spiritual aspect to that too. Marriage covenant is a choice. It's in those moments, guys, I would suggest that our marriages start to mature, Because the haze of love is easy. It's easy to be attracted to somebody. Anybody can do that. 
But sticking with someone whenever it's hard, that's not as easy. And so husbands and wives in a healthy, God-centered marriage, listen up. This might blow your ears off. Husbands and wives in a healthy, God-centered marriage have every right to demand all of the love of their spouse. Okay? Now, guys, before you think I'm saying something that I'm not, let me just say that again. Husbands and wives in a healthy, God-centered marriage have every right to demand all the love of their spouse. And so if that statement strikes you as odd, I think you should go home and check it out in light of Scripture. But basically it means this. Choosing every day to give only to each other your whole heart while requiring the same of your spouse is exactly what you signed up for if you're married. It's exactly what you signed up for. And it's a spiritual covenant. And we'll actually talk more about that next month. So our marriage covenant here on earth is supposed to be a reflection of the covenantal relationship that we have with God. Much of the terminology is the same when he talks about um, idolaters being adulterers, which is really hard to say back to back. Idolaters being adulterers. This is what he's referring to. He's saying, listen, my heart is only for you as my people. And I want your heart to be only for me. That's what I want. I want you. And so if you look back at what God's saying in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, this covenant that he establishes with us, God makes this commitment that he's giving everything to us, but he demands the same in return. He demands our whole selves, no compartmentalizing. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all all your might. Not just a part of who we are, our beliefs, but not our actions, right? It's not that, okay, I'm going to believe this. I believe that God is awesome. And then you go live like he's not. Or you say, oh, I believe in you, God, but then you go live like you don't, right? But it's no, I want your beliefs. I want your actions. I want everything. It's not just one day a week. It's everything that we have to give. And as You know, if we're really candid about this, I think this is where the wheels fall off a lot of time uh, in our modern Christian experience, especially in this country, I would say. If you go to other countries, and we'll hear about this in a month, I guarantee you we will. People are all in, man. When it comes to God, when it comes to Jesus, when they find him, they are all in. It, it, It steers their lives, their days, everything is about it revolves around whatever he's doing in the world. But you come here and there's something about our popular culture that erodes away, I think, a part of our identity as Christians, at least what it should be. We often succumb to the pressure or the temptation to compartmentalize this relationship with God and maybe just, you know, I'm going to fit him in over here. Oh, I've got a Sunday. I could do that. I could do one Sunday a month. That'll work. Oh, you know what? I have, actually have time to do this thing. Uh, I'll, I'll go to this Bible study. It's cool. Our time in church happens if like our personal activities or our kids' activities or rehearsals or practices or whatever the things are that's encroaching in uh, don't conflict. Or our financial commitments to God, we basically give them the leftovers if there are some. It's like, oh, yeah, I'll do that. Our service to others only comes with the extra time that we have, which is rare. Or our study of scripture and tradition never moves beyond what we're spoon-fed in a quick video or maybe a 20-minute Devo. Listen, he challenges us. He wants more. He wants all of us. Not as a list of rules or gold stars or the VBS chart that you're filling out when you go to church. It's like, listen, I want relationship with you. And this is how we have it. This is how we find it. 
And I would suggest that what I talked about before, those are not giving God our everything. The king of the universe wants you, and he wants a relationship with you and with me. Let's go back to our marriage example. What if my wife, Valerie, only got my time when I had nothing else going on? How do you think that would play? Not well. What if my kids only received my extra cash when I had it, which is never... Right? These are the types of commitments that we're talking about. God doesn't want us just finding a spot when we can. He's like, I want you to put me on your calendar. Like, I want to be there. I want to dominate a day. I want to dominate parts of every day, at least as far as the study is concerned. But I need to be, like, involved in what's going on with you, man. I want to be there. I would suggest that if we were just giving the people in our lives the extra that we had... It wouldn't go very well, and you know that too because you've seen it, right? You know people that live or have lived that way and how that went. People who reduce their relationships with their children or their parents or their spouses or their friends to a similar thing. And so what happens ultimately is that those relationships become strained. They become distant. They lose the vibrancy that the community is supposed to have, right, that we're supposed to have with each other. And then they're not precious like they should be. Every person that God's placed in your life is a gift. They may not feel that way all the time, but they are. They walk around this planet and they bear his image. And that alone is worth something. And then, of course, often those relationships end when the priorities don't fall where they should. In our culture, we separate intellect from emotions. And while we believe that worship and prayer... Sometimes it works this way. We think, oh, worship and prayer. Yes, absolutely. I'm so, like, I'm into that. That needs to happen. But then we don't prioritize things like studying scripture. And we wonder why we struggle. But here's the thing. In Jesus' time and continuing now even in Judaism, study of scripture is considered the highest form of worship. Do you know that? It is considered like that is It. So while God does love those with the faith of a child, we have every reason to believe that he expects our faith to grow so that we can share him with other people. But that has to come from a place, I think, of a mature relationship. So if we're going to love him with all of our lavav, our heart and our mind, we should dedicate all of our mental abilities to him. The heart is the seat of intellect, life, and emotions. And so uh, to wrap this up, Everything starts with the heart in any relationship, but I would suggest, especially in our relationship with God, that's where it starts. We may have all these grand plans of things that we want to see in our lives, things that we want to get done, ways that we want God to use us and all that stuff. But ultimately, if our hearts aren't right, none of that's going to happen. We're going to fail and we're going to fail miserably. So how do we do it? How do we get to that point? Like, how do I give him all of my intellect, that seems strange. Like, I'm going to give you all of my brainwaves, God. How do I do that, right? It's like, I I don't know. How do we draw closer to him in that? Well, first, we have to remember that it starts with the decision. We have to choose. And you can choose to give God your whole heart, or you can choose not to. And we make that choice every day, sometimes multiple times a day. God has equipped us to think. He's given us reason. He's given us creativity. All these aspects of who he is, He's gifted to us, but he also gives us this choice to love him. We can choose. 
There's a story in um, Israel's history about a king, and his name was Josiah. And this happens in the um, book of 2 Kings uh, chapter 22 and also in Chronicles 34 and 36. But Josiah became king at the ripe old age of eight years old. Talk about pressure, right? You could do it, little buddy. Come on. I know this crowd doesn't fit great right now, but just wait. Not only was he pressured by his age, but he followed up an evil father and an evil grandfather who had run the kingdom into the ground. And so one of the things that he very first did is he ordered that the temple of the Lord be cleaned and repaired. It had been basically destroyed and lots of stuff that did not honor God was happening in that, in that building. And so it's like, listen, we need to clean this thing up. And so they sent people in. The high priest goes in and he finds the Torah. And he's like, what's this? Where did this come from? It had been lost and forgotten. And listen, only a few generations had passed. And already God's word had been lost and forgotten in his very temple. And so they bring it back. He asks them to read it to him. And Josiah is convicted by the words that they read. And he's like, how, how could this have happened? How could we have forgotten this? So he gathered all the people together and he, re- he read the book of the law to them. And so I suggest to you the decision part of this is that a decision for God always leads to action. When we say we believe in God, when we give our hearts to him, whether that's through some type of surrender, when you first give your life to Jesus, listen, that's not so that you can just come in here and you can sit on a chair, but God calls each of us to action. There's a response that he desires. So the first one is we have to make a decision and choose God with our whole hearts. The second one is this, dedication. We must choose to fix our eyes solely on Jesus. So for the first time in hundreds of years, because of what Josiah did, God's people celebrated the Passover according to God's law. Josiah took God's covenant to heart. He began to seek, uh, what does it say? He began to seek the God of his father, David. Talking about David, you know, from the Bible. In 2 Chronicles 34, 3, it says that. So, in other words, he's like, I read these words of David. I want to have the heart for God that he had, so I want to seek that. By the age of 12, Josiah had instructed that idols were to be destroyed in Judah, Jerusalem, and throughout the land. And this was a point where the kingdom of Israel was split into two kingdoms. And so, he says, listen, not only are we not going to be a part of this, but no one's going to be a part of this. So, they order all the idols and stuff to be destroyed. And then at age 18, he raised enough money to repair the temple. And that's a pretty phenomenal lemonade stand if you think about it. Like to raise that much money to fix the temple at age 18 is awesome. And so, but all it takes is one person for you, not worrying about the rest of the world, what anyone else thinks, but time and time again, we see in scripture, one person that was dedicated to God's purposes made all the difference in the lives of many people. And I would suggest to you that those days are not done. That that can happen in your world every day, no matter what you do, no matter where you work, no matter who you surround yourself with. If you are dedicated, if your eyes are fixed on Jesus, you can make a difference for God's kingdom in that place. All it takes is one. King Josiah was just one little man, right? A little kid. 
And his action led to this moment of national rededication to the Lord. God's people being called back to him. They bring out all the junk that's being used for idol worship in the temple. They destroy it with the idols and the altars to idols. And they dedicate the temple solely to the use of God. And so our lives must also be dedicated solely to the use of God. Not allowing anything else to creep in there. So cleaning your own temple, right? If your body's your temple... Cleaning your own temple, I'm not talking about a health program, although maybe that's, that's a conviction, I don't know. But I'm saying that anything that competes as an idol for God's attention of your heart, you need to be careful. If you find anything or any activity that's creeping in, even good activities can do this. And pulling you away from the things that God's calling you to do, the places that he wants you to be, the people that he wants you to be with, that's a time we have to watch out. And there are lots of things that call for our attention because they're good things. But even good things can become an excuse for failing to commit ourselves to the closeness and the relationship that God calls us to. It's good for our kids, for example, to have a great childhood that is packed full of awesome stuff. And every parent wants to give their kids more than they had. I totally get it. I do too. But in those moments where maybe the things you're giving your kid are pulling them away from the places that they should be, maybe it's pulling them away from church on the weekend or uh, Wednesday night engaging with other kids their age far as, um, in, a, in a place where they're talking about what God's doing. That's at the expense of your family's spiritual health. It's good for us to have fun and hobbies and interests. That's one of the amazing things I think about the way that God created us, that all of those things, whether it's art or, I mean, you name it, music, it can all glorify him. And we can use the gifts and the creativity and even just time with other people to glorify him in that. But where it becomes a problem is if God's forced to watch us do that from the sidelines. Because... We're dedicated to pursuing something instead of someone, him. God promises us faithfulness, but he demands the same from us. And then the third thing is devotion. We must replace idols with habits that honor God. Although the word of God had been in the temple the whole time, it had not been read or put into practice, right? It was just there. And no one even knew it. Everyone had forgotten it. 2 Kings 23.3 says this, And the king, meaning Josiah, stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul. Sound familiar? To perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Again, just one. The Hebrew verbs for feelings will often refer to actions that result from them. And so we demonstrate our love through devotion. The way that we love God is through obedience and through faithfulness. And now you might say, well, wait a second. I thought that all that stuff was kind of set aside whenever Jesus came onto the scene and we don't have to keep a list of rules or any of that stuff. Listen, that's not what we're talking about. God throughout history and continues to call us to obedience. When Jesus... And Paul and these other guys that are teachers, that are rabbis, give us commandments. They're commands, right? God's saying, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to live. And so he calls us to obedience. That's never changed. He wants us to embrace him. Not because we have to. Not because we're afraid we're going to get struck by lightning or some bad thing's going to happen to us. We obey because we love him. 
We obey because we know it pleases him. We obey because we know that he has our best interests in mind. I mean, how many times as a parent have you had to tell your kid to do something that you knew they weren't going to like, they're probably going to be mad about it, but ultimately you were preventing them from some hurt that was going to be way worse than the temporary moment of sadness because they couldn't run out into the street. But the street's a joyful place, Dad. I love it. Yeah, but cars drive on that street joyfully. And they'll mow you down joyfully too. Right? There are reasons for these things. And so God calls us to all that. Uh, Spiritual disciplines. We talk about this a lot. But prayer, right? Uh, Study, fasting, generosity. These are the ways that we obey him. These are the ways that we connect with him. And that's the motivation, guys. It's not, I got to keep all of the spiritual list stuff so that I can make sure that I'm cool with God so that when all this ends... We're going to be cool with each other and he's going to give me the pass and let me in to heaven, right? That's not what it's about. It's about a relationship with him now. He's forming us for something greater later on. He has things he needs us to do now and later. And so all of these things he's forming in us for that reason. The same thing with the way that we love other people. Benevolence, kindness, and generosity. God teaches us about his nature and who he is. Through that, again, people who are image bearers of him. But note, all of these steps that I've shared with you, decision, dedication, and devotion, all of them are action. All of them are action-oriented. They all, it's us taking a step to do something. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we destroy, and I love that, we destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So in the times where we tell ourselves, I can't do this. God's saying, yes, you can. I'm with you, man. That rhymed. That was awesome. You can do this. I've made you for this. You can do it. The purpose is not checking boxes off the list. The purpose is that direct connection, that intimacy with a God that loves us and wants to transform our lives and the lives of others through us. A relationship with a God who wants you. When we come close, when we come close to God, he promises that he will come close to us. And that will change everything. We say that we want to see change in our marriages. We say that we want to see change with our kids. We say that we want to see change in our nation. We say that we want to see change in our world, but what are we doing about it? Everything starts with your heart. If we can't even bring ourselves into a right relationship with God, how do we expect that to happen around us? But the good news is that God gives us himself and love, even to the point of ultimate sacrifice of his son. He asks for our hearts and he expects the same in return. Would you guys bow your hearts with me today? God, we love you and Well, I know there are times that you as our Father challenge us, and that can be difficult. God, we ultimately know that your way is better. So, Father, I just pray today uh, for those of us who are in this room that maybe have things weighing on us in our lives, or maybe we just feel like there's no way that you can use us. 
I pray that you would remind each and every person today how important they are to you. How much you love them and how much you gave for them. Not so that we could sit on the sidelines, God, but so that we could live joyfully for you. So that all of those things that you placed within us, our dreams, our goals, our desires, our talents, the character, our experiences, all the things that make us who we are, God, that when we align those things with you and what you want to do, truly amazing things can happen. And so God, I pray today, if there are people that are here and they are feeling condemned, I pray that you'd help them to know that condemnation is not from you. That in every moment of crisis or struggle or difficulty, that there's an opportunity, there's a place for you to work. But God, I also pray that if there are places in our lives that you're convicting us, you're challenging us to make change, that that we would just surrender them to you. We want to be a people, God, that are solely dedicated to you and to your purposes on this planet. And we know that that's the place where we find peace, and we find rest, and we find joy, and we find love. All these things that the world craves but can't seem to grasp because they're looking in the wrong places. Help us to be a beacon, God. No matter what our age, I pray that we would shine for you in our families, in our workplaces, everywhere that we go. Help us to dedicate our full hearts, every part of who we are to you. And we thank you for Jesus and all of these things are in his name. Amen.